Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week, my guest is Frank Young, a noted comics historian, as well as a really interesting guy to talk to. This week, we talk about the classic comic strip Elma, which Frank uh, produced a collection of. Elma ran from about 1946 to about 1950 or 52, and Frank describes it as what if David Lynch met Little Abner. It's a fascinating odd, intriguing comic strip, which merits an hour and 20 minutes worth of conversation about that and other interesting topics. I really enjoyed uh, having my chance to talk with Frank um, in the last couple weeks, and I think you will enjoy listening to it. Please let me know what you think. The show starts right after this ad. I was just rereading Elmo just now to kind of get back up to speed on it. Um, what a treat. Yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> there's never been a comic strip quite like it. And, uh, it's, you know, it, it's, it's fun to see people's, people's reaction to it for the first time. What if, uh, what is most people's reaction? Uh, just gen- genuine surprise, uh, almost bordering on shock that such a thing ever happened, and uh, you know that the comic strip went its uh, went the course that it did, and and then came to a. a a, a kind of a, a sadly abrupt conclusion, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which which uh, since the uh, publication of that book, I have I believe I can attribute it to uh, the the cartoonist editor at the uh, Chicago Daily News who had a very uh, comic book character name. His name was was uh, Basil Walters, and his nickname was Stuffy. And uh, he, he uh, never liked Elmo from, from uh, the information I've been able to, to dig up. And I think he might have just nagged Cecil Jensen into dropping Elmo in the, the late 40s. So for someone who hasn't read the strip, how would you describe it? Well, it's... It's... Well, imagine uh, if David Lynch did Little Abner. (laughs) Uh, It's something that on the surface looks like a uh, very conservative and dull comic strip, but then when you sit down and read it, you're confronted with one weird image and one jarring moment after another. And you you see things that you wonder if they're meant to be funny or not. Uh, you know, his uh, Jensen's sense of humor is... is uh, I can't think of anyone else to compare it to. It, it's this very dry, dry and grim 
sensibility that you know he he plays he plays his cards very close to his his chest and and sometimes at the end of the strip you'll have this sort of impasse and then three hours later you'll finally get it and laugh out loud in the <laughs> checkout line and then have to try to explain to people I'm not a maniac I just you know <laughs> do you do that often Frank start laughing in the middle of the checkout line <laughs> um, not, ter- not terribly often but uh, in the course of working on these books yes because I uh you know, I'll, I'll be spending spending all day with up close and personal with these strips, and uh, you know the 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 humor of them will will that just eluded me while I was working on it will just tap me on the shoulder and uh, you know that that now I get it moment. I just. The thing that got me the most is just kind of that dark, hilarious surrealism surrealism of it, like you said. I mean, literally the first panel is um, this, like, what, he's eight years old, I think, at the in the panel one, where the mom ha- is yeah. whipping him to have him clean diapers. And then literally in the fifth panel, he saves a rich man from committing suicide just by grabbing his ankles. So, like... Yeah. In the first week of the strip alone, it's like incredibly dark and also just incredibly ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's that, and that, and that's the the tightrope wire that that strip walks on. Uh, that something could be as dark and violent as it is, and still be so absurd. Those are two flavors that don't usually go together in uh, in popular culture. And I've I've searched I've searched high and low for in the hopes of finding some newspaper article where somebody interviewed the, the cartoonist when the strip was out, but there there are none that I can find. He didn't do any pre publication publicity or anything? No. Um, he drew one promotional drawing. Uh which I used on the back cover of the book. And uh, only one newspaper I found actually ran it. And uh, it just, there's there's nothing unless uh, it, it is in the Chicago Daily News, which was his, his, the paper that he worked for as an editorial cartoonist for 40 years. And that paper, unfortunately, has not been digitized yet. And there probably are a lot of answers to questions I've had in the pages of the Daily News, but I won't know till it finally is is available for digital research. Isn't it fun kind of stumbling over a mystery when you've been involved in comics for as long as you have? Yeah, I mean, that, that is what, it, it was a mystery that I remembered from my teenage years because uh, part of my education in comics history was uh, exploring uh, a very large, li- 
library of newspapers on microfilm at my hometown university, Florida State University, uh, when I was in high school during the summers, it was a, it was a great place to go because it was air conditioned and dark. And, uh, you know, I would just go through these newspapers and, and see what strips they carried. And I had never heard of Elmo before. And I, I found a paper that carried it for about the first eight months and then dropped it, which was a pretty common thing with the strip. And, uh, you know, of course, at the time, I couldn't physically get copies of these things. I just had to keep it in, keep it in my memory. And this peculiar strip just stuck with me. And I was sort of scouting around for a, a project to, to work on. And I dimly remembered Elmo and started digging around and, and managed to piece together the whole, the whole run of the first, first stint of, of Elmo's life as a comic strip character. And it's, it's Frankenstein together from seven or eight newspapers that ran the strip. And, uh, it was it was really a kind of a mistreated strip when it was new. Uh, the uh, it was distributed by the Register and Tribune Syndicate, and their their paper, the Des Moines Tribune, didn't even bother to run the first week of the strip, huh. which is weird. Uh, and they 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 hung on to the strip until in uh, the fall of 1960, uh, Jensen Jensen did something really disturbing in the strip, and so they they moved it off their comics page to like the uh, classified ad section, and then dropped it in the last six months of its run. That was when it had become Little Debbie, which is a. It 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 officially became Little Debbie in uh, late nineteen forty eight or early forty nine. So I think that's and, one of the. Uh, go ahead, keep going. Oh no, go ahead. Well, I think that's one of the interesting aspects of the strip is, it starts with such kind of verb and craziness, and really for the first nine months to a year. It's got this vitality to it, but you can even see when you're leafing through the book, like the the panels are denser, the backgrounds are more complex. There's more words per page, and um, kind of suddenly the strip gets a little lighter, a little more um, just less wordy. Like by the time yes. they get in the the um, airplane sequence, um, it just feels little lighter and then little Debbie joins the strip and it kind of seems to transform under our eyes into something very different from what it seemed to be at the beginning. Yes. And I would love to, to have a, like a historically verifiable account of why that happened. But, uh, the only thing I know is that, that Jensen's editor disliked Elmo, uh, and, 
and Jensen may have just simply got sick of all the pressure and just figured it was easier to to focus on Debbie because uh, readers responded to her. Uh, and uh, Little Debbie was often as weird and dark a strip as Elmo. But, uh, you know, because it was little kids, I guess it, it was more palatable. So, but, uh, but yeah, as, as you said, uh, you know, Jensen is a, is a man inspired in the first year or so of that strip. You just, you get the feeling of, of uh, somebody who is, has had a, a sort of epiphany that he can't wait to get down on paper and get into comics form. And I, it feels like he didn't really know where the strip was going when he started it. He was just, he was just going with this impulse that, you know, he obviously felt he was on to something. Yeah, that's, it just feels like it's bouncing between different ideas, stories, concepts, all throughout the first half of the book, which gives it this crazy kind of kinetic energy. Yeah, it, uh, if you look at it in the context of, of uh, a daily comics page that it appears on, it really does leap off the page. There's just nothing else there that, that you know, it, it just seems like an alien presence on the, on the newspaper comics page. And I think it, it is a kind of strip that if it had if it had happened in the sixties, I think it, it would have it would have clicked with people. But it was uh, right after World War Two. I think it was just too dark for for most people to deal with. You know, America was was coming out of a of long and nasty war and I think just wanted wanted to sit back and be entertained and not have something that made them look over their shoulder yeah, there's as, nothing. Uh, as Elmo as Elmo will often do you you know you you just goes oh man that was that was kind of chilling chilling and yet hilarious at the same time yes yeah, and you could see echoes of that in like the darker comedy of the um, 50s and 60s. Um, oh, oh, who's the the writer from the Realist, and then his work was, was um, very oh, dark. Oh, Paul Krasner. Yeah. No, he was. The, yes, he was the editor. Yeah. Yeah, see, I see a bit of that in the strip. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense, kind of in the post-war era see why this got greenlit in, in the immediate post-war time because so much was uncertain then and then almost as soon as America kind of fell into that post-war complacency not complacency but suburban approach the peaceful approach it was kind of out of step with things yeah yeah that's a that's a that's a really good observation and <clears throat> You know, you have to wonder: was was it a crushing blow for Cecil Jensen to have this really 
original and vivid and wild idea not thought very well of. Uh, there's, you know, there's nothing. It just, he just kept on doing the strip and did five editorial cartoons a week. And, and uh, I have discovered that for much of the, uh, the Elmo-less run of the strip, he had an assistant or a ghost who would uh, pick up the strip. I am, I'm guessing that maybe at times the editorial cartoons, which he considered to be his major work, that the workload may have been, you know, deadlines or whatever may have prevented him from being able to do the strip. And mm. this other artist whose whose work looks close enough to, to Jensen's, but is, uh, is both a little slicker and a little sloppier. Uh, you, you see him, him filling in, you know, sometimes in a, a week of daily strips, uh, you know, Jensen will do three and the, uh, the other person will do three. And you could really uh, see that difference between them. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, I posted uh, a couple of the the ones by the assistant on Facebook, and and some people weren't sure, but uh, but one person said, yeah, the way this other guy draws the characters are are huge, you know, really really telling differences. So, what was his editorial cartoons like? You. Produced a reproduced a couple from during World War II. Um, did he fall in what uh, uh, party? Did he have a certain kind of axe to grind? Uh, he uh, he appears to have been a uh, you know not a not a a conservative person in his political beliefs. Uh, I think he most of his political cartoons try to find some kind of droll or dry humor in the the topical situations that that they're they're about. Um, again, it would be wonderful to have access to the Chicago Daily News because yeah. uh, uh, like a lot of political cartoonists, Jensen was syndicated, and I found probably 40 or 50 examples. Uh, the, uh, the, the second book, which I'm, I'm working on right now, will have a, a gallery of more of his political cartoons. Uh, ranging from the twenties to the sixties. Yes, yeah, so I think yeah. book book one was pro, was pretty closely targeted to one era and one type of strip, and it kind of tells a really nice narrative. Um, what are you hoping to to kind of deliver in book two? I know you've been working on it for a while. Well, book two is is uh, is you know rediscovering Elmo. And and sort of piecing together his story was a big surprise, and uh, I had just assumed that the strip 
just kept on going with little kid jokes until whenever it ended. And I was searching to find when the strip concluded. And uh, I stumbled upon a uh, strip from August 1960 that had Elmo in it. Oh, wow. And and uh, in the last year of the strip, the strip ran to the end of September 1961. In the, the last year of the strip, in late summer 1960, Cecil Jensen brought Elmo and his world back into the strip for a few months. Huh. And uh, at the time, Jensen was approaching age 60 and had been a professional cartoonist since the mid-20s and was kind of winding down a little bit. And this comic strip that had, I, I feel, had probably become a bit of a burden to him uh, because it wasn't in a lot of newspapers in 1960. I, my guesstimate is that it probably had about 10 and that can't have made Jensen or the syndicate very much money and was probably seen as more trouble than it was worth. But I'd love, again, I'd, I'd love to know why he decided to bring Elmo back. But it's this, it's this wonderful, like a final rallying uh, from a comic strip that has been okay for like over a decade. I mean, Debbie was never terrible, but uh, the, the quality of the, of the, uh, the, Ideas were just all over the map. Uh, in one week of strips, you would have the same kind of joke book gags that you'd see in a strip like Ernie Bushmiller's Nancy, but not as focused and not as funny. And uh, then you might get a strip with a topical reference to some fad of the day and then you get one really strange, kind of chilling or enigmatic joke that, you know, when you finish the strip, you're just like, I don't know what to make of this. That's the one that you're sitting at safe, walking through the Safeway checkout line, all of a sudden you get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, 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 these time release capsules. <laughs> But he uh, he rallies in this uh, this what I call the second coming of Elmo. He uh, that weird, dark, droll viciousness came back. Uh, the strip uh, kind of reaches a climax when Elmo returns to the Pop Nut Scrummies company. Uh, where he passes a, uh, he has to pass an IQ test of fitting square pegs and round holes. <laughs> and uh, no one's ever been able to do it, but he manages to do it. And so he dethrones uh, Commodore Bluster as the sitting president of the company. And then Bluster is, is reduced to the doorman for the company. And so he hires a mafia hitman to kill Elmo. But uh, 
Elmo hires the hitman to be his bodyguard, which completely neutralizes dark as anything in the uh, the original late 40s run it's it's absolutely shocking yeah and there must have been some blowback from that because nothing like that happens again in the strip and and Jensen just reaches a point where it feels like he doesn't know what he either doesn't know what to do with Elmo or his editor finally noticed what he was doing and told him, you know, no, 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 stop this now. Is that when he got moved off the uh, comic page onto the editorial page or was there a different event? Um, no, well, the, uh, the, the, uh, the mafia hitman gag was the incident that got it moved off the uh, paper's comic page and onto like one okay. of the back pages. Uh, <clears throat> and then at the uh, the end of the or during the summer of 1961, uh, Jensen did something just. It, words fail me, and I and I. I really don't want to spoil the surprise for people that, you know, because I'm hoping to get this book out this fall. Uh, but he, he does something with the strip that I've never seen any other cartoonist do. And uh, in part, uh, what he does is a inspired parody of Peanuts uh, that is just really, really wigged out and odd. And then the strip ended at the end of the last day of September of 1961, and he managed to bring the strip to a really haunting close. It It has a definite ending, and it is a a really bittersweet final note for the strip. It, you know, I I say in the the foreword to the book, I try to imagine the uh, the reader on this uh, Saturday afternoon at, at the end of September and just being brought to a complete standstill by what happens. Oh, you have me and, really and intrigued. Then, hmm. And then, of course, you know, they, they looked on Monday and little Debbie was gone. You know, and no, uh, you know, in those days, it was very rare for a strip to conclude with any any public fanfare. Uh, a cartoonist was retired or just was finished with a strip and it just wasn't there anymore. And it's a it's a it's a fitting ending for a, one of the most peculiar comic strips uh, that ever appeared in in American newspapers. And it's uh, it's it's exciting to bring bring this 
completely unanticipated and unknown surprise back into print. So one thing that occurs to me is that it's a cliche, history is written by the victors, but it's easy to find uh, the reprints of either the most critically acclaimed or most popular strips of the 40s, 50s, 60s, the stuff like Little Abner, um, um, you know, the Kniff strips, and stuff like that. It makes me wonder how much material there is like this that kind of exists under the radar that's just incredibly great if you just knew it existed. Yeah, I, I, I am certainly looking around for in the hopes of finding something else like this that of course there's nothing else like this but there's there's got to be other works that are like real works of artistic genius in some ways yeah i i hope i hope that there's one or two things not yet that nobody's yet paid attention to uh in some ways, this this strip feels like the the last last great surprise that uh, that newspaper comics has from the twentieth century. But I could be wrong. Yeah, I guess it depends on your <laughs> attitude toward the world. Um, I've been fascinating since high school when I read a, a strip by Jeff Dadziger called McGonagall of the Chronicle, um, which is almost completely forgotten now, but was just hysterical at the time. Um, and, you know, Danziger has obviously been a famous newspaper cartoonist for years. Um, I just wish someone would put some of those together and uh, I'd like to know if it's still as good as I remember it being. Sounds like this kind of has been haunting you for about as long as that strip's been haunting me. Well, I'll have to look for that. Uh, it's, uh, it's really wonderful, uh, having, uh, sites like newspapers.com because you can you can dig and and with uh, with papers that have been digitized in the last few years uh, they thank goodness were were flatbed scanned rather than than sourced from microfilm so you can actually uh, you know you can actually get good reproducible results from them. Have you found anything else that kind of sparks your eye? I saw you did an intro to a collection of something called Mitzi McCoy. Oh, yeah, that that was a, a book that, that uh, Brian Collins, who was the grandson of her uh, comic strip artist named Craig Collins, uh, who was most famous for a, a medieval comic strip called Kevin the Bold, which ran from 1950 to 1968. And uh, uh, about a decade ago, I did a blog post about uh, how that, how the strip Mitzi McCoy morphed into Kevin the Bold, and I just thought that was a fascinating story, 
And as a result of that blog post I did, I was contacted by Brian Collins, and he said that he had he had been amassing a run of the strip, and I really encouraged him to get it back into print, and he found a, a publisher that was that was willing to you know get it out there and uh, that introduction was a lot of fun to write because for a change I had a whole lot of information uh, because uh, Craig Collins had saved all of his correspondence with the syndicate so I had this fly on the wall view of uh, of he and his editor at the syndicate figuring out this comic strip and getting getting through its uh, you know its 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 growing pains and then realizing that they wanted to change it to a completely different feature it sounds a little familiar considering what we were just talking about <laughs> yeah I guess that's my uh, my my forte as a, uh, <laughs> a comics historian. Uh, so, uh, and, yeah. uh, and, you know, Missy McCoy is a totally different strip from Elmo. It's, uh, uh, more on, more on, it's a more straight strip for sure. Uh, with really attractive artwork and, uh, uh, you know, it's it's an it's a. I I don't think it's a. It's as unusual or significant a strip as Elmo, but it's it's a very appealing work, and and uh, it's in a sense it's kind of too bad that that the artist so radically changed the strip, but. They were just doing what they thought would appeal to people, and you know, get more get more subscribers. Yeah, and that's that's like a lot of it too. It's like it, it's so distant from why people subscribe that it almost seems arbitrary what strips a newspaper would carry. I mean, uh, yeah, they other than something like Pogo. You know, I can't imagine people were making decisions about what paper to take based on the strips. Well, I, you know, I, I think that earlier in the 20th century, uh, cartoonists did have that kind of clout. And okay. it was it was in part because newspapers treated them as something special and gave them a, a whole lot of space. And you know, a, a comic strip in the the teens or twenties or even the nineteen thirties would would be considered a circulation builder for for newspapers. They would brag that they had you know Little Orphan Annie or Dick Tracy uh, as an encouragement to get people to buy them. And unfortunately. During World War II, uh, it's my belief that the important things with newspapers came to be getting them out 
really fast to get the war news out to people. Mm -hmm. And uh, they did that at the expense of of high printing quality. And then after World War II is over, they thought, well, this is working fine for us. We'll just stay with this. And, you know, dur during the war, the the publication size of newspaper comic strips really shrank. And some artists were able to cope with that. And like, uh, like Chester Gould, uh, the Dick Tracy artist, he, he, his work, I've seen some atrocious reproductions of it, but it still comes through. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that worked against Cecil Jensen was that his, he didn't really know how to draw for such terrible reproduction. He was used to the bigger canvas of being an editorial cartoonist. And uh, Elmo uh, suffered, just terribly suffered from the, the careless and reckless high-speed printing processes of most American papers. Do you think? Uh, do you think the American comic strip is kind of the idea the comic strip is lost on a younger generation? Do you think it's going to eventually kind of become like pulp magazines, where they're kind of a cult thing, or do you think the quality of work kind of wins out over time? Well, I'm. I hope that the that the best work remains valid to uh, to younger readers. Uh, you know, the, the idea that that a work of comics appeared in, you know, four, three or four squares a day every day probably seems kind of quaint to, to, uh, to the younger generation of, of comics readers. But I do see people getting into old strips via the the reprint books that are, that are coming out. And so I, I think there may be, it may seem curious that the, that there are comics that are obviously so choppy compared to a, a long form story or a graphic novel or a, you know, an ongoing ongoing series with a lot of continuity like Love and Rockets. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the, the really great storytellers of comics, uh, I think will live on. And, and, uh, it's interesting to see how, how younger people do react to these. I, I think I've noticed when I've tried to take stuff like that in to show the uh, grade school and middle school kids that I teach, uh, the only strip that really seems to intrigue them is Crazy Cat. Huh. That one really grabs them. But uh, I've tried other things, uh, and they just they look at it as one might look at a dead cat lying on the side of the street and then just you know, move on to something else. 
Do you have a theory why Crazy Cat makes them react differently? It might be the the unusual page layouts. It might be the fact that the cartooning is less slick by aesthetic standards and probably feels closer to what they feel they're capable of drawing. Oh. And this is not to put down George Harriman's work at all because he's one of my favorite cartoonists. But he... You know, compared to someone like uh, George McManus, who did uh, Bringing Up Father, or Frank King, who did Gasoline Alley, there's a there's a primitive quality to Harriman's work, a, a, a you know, a real earthiness, and I I think that's relatable in a way that that a really slick, quote unquote, professional looking strip isn't. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. Kid strips especially had been frequently drawn that way. And I remember when I was in school, like young school, like drawing my own versions of the Peanuts characters, in part because it seemed so easy to draw them, so I could relate to that. Yeah, I, I did the same thing. I remember trying to draw Nancy and just giving up in frustration. I could but, never uh, get Snoopy's you know, ears just right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a the Charlie Brown was was fairly easy to draw, but yeah, Snoopy. It was it was very easy to give him huge elephant ears or tiny, you know, paltry looking things. So how do you? But, uh, s- go ahead, keep going. Oh, I'm done. I'm done. I was going to change the I was going to change the subject because I. I'm curious, so one of the things that's really interesting that I've studied a little bit is America right after World War II, kind of that post-World War II era. Um, How do you see, um, and of course you've written so much about um, 50 Suburbia um, through the eyes of John Stanley, how do you see, like, Jensen's view of the 50s and 60s as uh, compared to Stanley's? Well, he, uh, well, both, both, uh, both Jensen Strip and Little Lulu share in common the fact that they kind of seem to be happening in a vacuum. Uh, there were a few more uh, topical references in Jensen's work than Stanley's, which, you know, the Little Lulu stories feel like they could take place in any time. And I think that is, Part of part of their lasting appeal, but uh, it's that's a really good question. It's, that's that's a what that's one to mull over. Uh, I often wonder what what was going through Jensen's mind as he was doing the strip because it's. It's uh, it isn't it doesn't have that that comforting quality of something like peanuts, which can be dark on occasions, but it it peanuts has this old friend feeling to it, mm-hmm. and uh, 
you know, a strip like Nancy, uh, which is just, you know, such a comic strip, uh, you know, it, it, it has a, it, it's kind of unavoidable and irresistible. And even if you roll your eyes at it, it's still something you, you, you're drawn to. And, uh, in, uh, in the second volume, I'm, I'm, I have a section before the, uh, Return of Elmo where, uh, there's going to be a section of 100, uh, carefully chosen little Debbie daily strips, uh, to kind of, kind of go through those, those 12 years in between Elmo appearances and give the reader a taste of, of what the strip was like at its best. Uh, because as I said earlier, it just, it's all over the place. There, there doesn't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be the focus and drive that there, that there is in either one of the, the Elmo periods. Uh, a lot of times the strip feels like, oh crap, that's right. I've got a daily comic strip. I better, you know, better get this week's strips done. And then amidst a couple of fair and middling, just very dull domestic humor jokes, there'll be something, you know, some interplanetary weird jarring thing that, that, uh, that, you know, you get this sudden burst of, of real inspiration. So something something was keeping him going all those years but i i felt like the second book really needed to give the reader a, a good taste of what the elmo-less years were like and they can make up their minds whether it was a, a waste of of uh, talent and effort or or something with some potential to it and you have me intrigued about it and I'm glad someone's curating this work, putting it in context and making it available. That, that, that gets me coming back to my whole thing about, like, what else is out there? Not even necessarily newspaper strips. Um, when I used to run Comics Bolton, we had a columnist, Daniel Elkin, who now works on this site, Solrad, which is focused on indie comics. But his first series of strips, or articles, rather, he did for us, was um, quarter bin finds. And, yeah, there were some where, you know, clearly people's ambition was better than what they were able to deliver. There were some where there were just crappy Marvel and DC comics. But what he eventually kind of fell into was this interesting set of comics that just, that were artistically meaningful to their creators and often very artful, but just never caught on for whatever reason. And they became, he did six or eight columns at least about books that were just lost treasures, books published by Image Comics in, you know, 15 years previously that probably sold 4,000 copies, but were this person's life ambition to get down on paper. And he found it both inspiring and depressing to know this is something that someone had put into, put the time and energy into, never took off and they moved into a different career and never did anything else after that. And yeah, um, those are those are 
comics are, are uniquely heartbreaking in that, that way. That, you know, that there have been so many people who have given their all and just been met with indifference. Yeah. Something unique about this art form, I think, because it's so individualistic. And, you know, I, I think because it is, it's so inexpensive to produce compared to, a, you know, a sound recording or, or a motion picture, you know, most comics are just guys sitting in rooms quietly drawing. And uh, I think publishers were, it was easier to take a chance on a, a comic book story or comic strip than have someone say, hey, I want to make a movie. Yeah. And it's also easier to start drawing your strip than it is to do almost anything else. Yes. And, uh, you know, 20 years ago, uh, uh, Dan Nadell did a, a marvelous anthology called uh, Art Out of Time. Mm-hmm which took this tack of, uh, of uh, presenting, presenting artists that have been overlooked or underestimated. And in fact, uh, that book had an excerpt from Elmo in it, which uh, I keep forgetting. That, is prob- that was probably kind of a, a, a delayed reaction thing of getting me interested in that strip again. You know, see, actually, you know, being able to see it in print and and realize, yes, this was as peculiar as I thought it was in in the seventies when I first came across it. I read that book, and I think I reviewed it. Even I was, uh, 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 it's still worth picking up. It's amazing some of the work that's reproduced in it, and a lot of it's been anthologized since, in in, in some ways or other. Um, yes, it, yeah, it, I think it's a very, it's a, a, it's a book that, that deserves more recognition than it's gotten. It's a, it was, it's just a great example of somebody choosing, choosing artists that are, that are outside the accepted canon of who's good and who isn't. And allows you to find different treasures than you would have otherwise found. Um, yes. Yeah, I remember the Dick Briefer uh, Frankenstein strip from that, which turned me onto all his work. And I've just, um, which is another, he's another creator who just completely follows his own vision. There's like three different versions of his Frankenstein, including this crazy, surrealistic, silly yeah. version of Frankenstein, which is just brilliant. Yeah, I would. I would love to do a a, a book anthology of Dick Briefer's work. Uh, see, he did so many different types of comics. He did some really great romance comics in the '40s and '50s. I've never seen those. Which uh, I, I I can send you some examples. Uh, it is his most uh, 
most tight and realistic and delicate work. And uh, you can, some of the stories have themes that are really similar to uh, plot ideas in the Frankenstein stories. And uh, he also drew stories for Archie comics in the 40s and 50s. Uh, I and and you know just put his his own spin on the characters. That sounds really intriguing. And, uh, I don't know very much about that work at all. Well, it's yeah, it's, it's I just kind of kind of stumbled upon it. I I uh, I am constantly uh, downloading scans of old comics. You know, which people are so kind to post on the internet, mm-hmm. and uh, and I had downloaded a batch of early '50s Archie comics. Just like, oh, I wonder if there's anything good in here. And I just, you know, some Jughead story, and and it was signed by him. It was like, holy cow! Huh. And uh, the the sto- the story is very much like our. our are very much like his funny Frankenstein stories. So I'm assuming that uh, he either wrote in himself or the same writer who, because I know he had a writer who helped him out on the humorous Frankenstein stories. I can't think of the guy's name, but it has been documented. Okay. Yeah, have you seen the Ogden Whitney uh, romance collection? Yes, yes, I did. Uh, I thought I thought that was uh, again. You know, the the fellow who did Art Out of Time, Dan Nadell, is behind that. Oh, that's right. And, uh, yeah. And I've al- I've always liked Ogden Whitney, uh, mainly uh, because of the 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 comic book Herbie, which is. The, the second strangest comics creation ever made after Elmo, I think, <laughs> and and has a, has a lot in common with Elmo, with a, a real an enigmatic main character and really that that same feeling of you don't know if the creator intended for something to be funny or not. That tension between. Uh, a com- comfortably predictable joke and something that's just kind of out there. Yeah, they're kind of oddly like dislocating. You know, it's like mm-hmm. I'm just not never sure how to react to it. And you know, that's why I like the most in art, though, is like at this moment where you just don't you're you're put in this existential moment where you're not sure what to do with the with the event. Yeah, there, and there's just there's too little art that that evokes that feeling. It you know most most works of of high art or low art don't hesitate to tell you what their agenda is. Mm-hmm. But the the uh, the ones that just leave you wondering. You know, those are those are the ones that 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 I find really fascinating and haunt me. I just did a pod the other day with a friend about Steve Ditko, and I found Ditko's later work especially 
does that to me also. Yeah, it, it, you know, you know, that's a case of, of work that has, has an enormous agenda, but that agenda is so puzzling. Yeah. But he delivers it with so much conviction. I mean, he's, he's not, his tongue is not in cheek. He's, he's deadly serious about these, these social and moral ideas that he presents. And as his, as his comics got further removed from any recognizable reality later in his life, uh, you know, they're, they're, again, talk about jarring. Yeah. You, you, you read those hoping that you find a spot, like a, a point of connection, uh, something you can relate to. <laughs> right. And it's, it's not there, but, you know, instead of, instead of giving up in disgust, you know, you're just, I find it very entertaining. It's it's fun to do something where, I mean, you you usually have to, uh, especially if you're if you're writing something set in another time period or with an unusual subject, you do have to do some research so that what you're writing has some authority to the reader. But you know, you're you're not governed by by historical facts and and verifiable things you're kind of allowed to go wherever the story takes you my problem when i write and fiction is i always end up picking these subjects that are too broad in some way and then just can never um square that circle of getting the history right it becomes too much work to really just get it down on paper Yeah, it, it's it's really easy to get uh, over ambitious with fiction. It's uh, I, I you know I I found that that uh, cho- choosing something something smaller and doing everything you can within that that limitation is is uh. uh what you know? What I hope creates a book that someone will enjoy reading. Yeah, you keep it focused too, right? Most of your books are around two hundred pages, which makes them quick ins and out, in and out for both the writer and the reader. Yeah, that seems to be a good. Uh, I have two two uh, quote unquote serious novels that are about four hundred pages each. Uh, uh, and I may may wind up writing another, you know, novel with a capital N in this lifetime. But uh, you know, I sort of like what you know how Graham Greene did it. He he called he referred to books like Never Odd or even as entertainments. And I guess that's really what they are. It's just it's just the fun of of telling a story within uh, the framework of a genre 
And, you know, for me, it's, it's fun to play against, sort of, sort of fight against the tropes mm-hmm. and, and find some, you know, I always enjoy the moment when I'm, you know, trying to figure out what to do next. I mean, I often, I go into writing fiction with a, with a pretty strong outline, but I give myself room to, to, uh, you know, turn down a side road and see if it leads anywhere. And it's those, those moments where you hit on something that, you know, that, that, that kind of upturns the formula. Mm-hmm. And, leads you to something, you know, something more rewarding to write than you bargained for. For me, it's the moment that just comes alive and it really does write itself. You can just feel the characters having these moments and they're kind of organically leading themselves in in the direction the story needs to take. Um, It's always really enjoyable. I just yeah, can never put it all together. I, I I have literally four or five different abortive starts that don't have don't necessarily get anywhere beyond a first draft. You're right. Maybe or yeah. what you're implying is right. Maybe I should just uh, go for something simpler in some ways. Just uh, tighten the focus and let it be more free. Yeah, because there you know even within a even within a you know, a seemingly simple uh, concept or, or subject matter, there there's still complexity inside that simple shell. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you never know what that's going to be. Uh, you know, that that's, that's the kind of, you know, that's the real carrot before the horse cart for me for writing fiction is... Uh, I uh, like the the book that I just finished. I I started off with a completely different idea of where it was going to go. Uh, I got I got about a third of a way into it, and I just you know I just realized I really don't want to write what I started out to write. That you know I, I just let let the story guide itself which you know can be is is risk taking you know it's that 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 approach is not always going to work out but uh i just have i just have faith that you know my my brain is putting together the right aggregation of things to make a make what i hope is a a readable and 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 unique, you know, fictional narrative. I guess, yeah. Yeah, well, it's in some ways it's uh, similar to what Jensen did in Elmo. I'm not sure how how tidy he worked, but he certainly act, he certainly delivered something felt very free. Um, I keep coming back to this kid analogy. You take your hands off the handlebars and let the bike take you where it's going to go. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's, 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 I've had moments like what you described a few minutes ago where it's 
I, it's kind of like writing as an out-of-body experience. It's like I'm just sitting there, and these, you know, these these words and situations are just coming from somewhere. You know, they're they're not they're not what I, you know, they're not planned or anything that I I was leading towards. It just and uh, you know the and you also have to be. I think fearless about realizing when something's not working and just, you know, the, the, the nice thing with writing on a computer is you can save, you can save the aborted versions and, uh, you know, hang on to it to, in case there's an idea, an idea that didn't work out in the context of one story can have use later down the road. Or you can go back to it and say, no, it's just being too mean to myself. It's not as bad as I thought it was. Yes, yes, yeah. And uh, I do like to, after I finish your book, I do like to just let it sit for a little bit. And and uh, because when I'm, when I'm, when I'm done with something, I really have no idea if it's good or not. Uh-huh. Just because it's it's been in my face for so long that you know I, I've I've finished it. <clears throat> you know, but the by the the fact that I finished it, it it must have some worth because I it, you would I would hope that if I was going down a disastrous road, I would realize it, but. Uh, it's always nice to let let something let something sit for a month or two and then go back to it and and look at it more objectively i was I was so trapped by that writing the history books, especially the nineties book because um, i kept i I would produce you know my whatever section about whatever book from the era and start criticizing myself for word choices or structure or whatever it was um, and start doing these ridiculous edit passes that really did nothing more than make me feel more and more miserable about what I put down on paper. And yeah, I realized I had to have a little bit of distance in order to just have some objectivity to it. Otherwise, I just get caught in the self-loathing. Oh yeah, and it's an, it's an awful place to be and it's, it's easy to get there. You know, it, it's... Uh... You know this this kind of work. You know it, it's just you and a and a word processor or a typewriter or a a, a notebook. You know it, it's there's there's almost always no one else involved and and it it is it is it is easy to misjudge oneself. Yeah, and I. I have learned that if I if I feel if I have a negative feeling about what I'm working on, that just means that it's it's time to just call it a day and go back to it, you know, the in a day or two. And and usually I look at it and go, oh, what was I so upset about? Uh-huh. This seems okay to me. 
Yeah, I'm sure you feel that way sometimes when you're teaching too. I feel that way at work. I'll be just like I'll have I'll be running a, a meeting and I'll say something wrong and I'll start ripping myself in my head and I realize no one else is really paying any attention to it or if they heard it they've already kind of forgiven me for it. They've moved on. Why am I lingering in this? Um, you know, especially when it comes to communication, none of us is perfect. Uh, but yeah, it's so hard yeah. to not let that stick in your head. I think writing, especially because it's so solitary, basically you're just in dialogue with yourself. So you know what you're trying to yeah. say, but you're not actually saying what you would imagine is the perfect vision of what you were going to create. It's just really hard. Yeah, and and you... And, you know, there's always that feeling, that, that hope that what you have in your head is going to translate to someone else who reads it. You know, the, that what you're, what you're saying is what gets across to the reader. And that is, uh, you know, talk about, talk about splitting hairs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing. It's like, um, I was thinking of it as you being in dialogue with a work of art where you bring so much of yourself to it. In fact, that's a good, that's a good place to kind of bring this back full circle and maybe wrap it up. Cause like reading something like Elmo now, what, 70, 80 years, 75 years after it was created, I guess. Um, yeah. we have to bring a different vision of, of what Cecil Jensen brought to it. Um, I mean, he created this work just out of World War II. He had no idea how the world would evolve. Um, and, you know, especially creating such a dark comic immediately after the horrific event of the world, of the war that destroyed almost the entire world. Um, yes. it, it's reasonable to create this dark yet hilarious vision as basically... Um, this Candide character, as you as you mentioned in the introduction, um, just trying to make his making the best out of trying to navigate that world. Um, it's striking how dark the world is and how self centered and nasty people are in that time frame. That's kind of informed by how he saw the world at the time. That's that's a really good point, and you know it it give it gives you you know like. As with like f film noirs that were being made around that time, it gives you a feeling that the world of post-war America was uh, not for the faint of heart. Mm -hmm. That there was a you know a very a very tough, hard-bitten feeling among people who had just survived. You know, survived a war that at one point America thought it was going to lose. And you know, all battle, battle. You know, veterans that had been through uh, terrible combat in the South Pacific and in Europe, and you know, were were haunted and jarred by what had happened to them. And you could see why, eventually, something more innocent like Little Debbie was appealing to them over something a lot more kind of confrontational like Elmo. Yes, yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's and you see that in, in movies too, you see, mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, by the end of the 40s, the movies aren't quite as dark as they were in the, the mid to late 40s. And, you know, you get things like those fluffy Technicolor Doris Day musicals, which are about as far far removed from reality as, as you could ask for in a movie experience. But they were, you know, huge box office successes. People, you know, I think by, by 1950 or so, people just didn't want to think about the 40s anymore. They just wanted to escape that and, and feel... And it was a period when America, I think, felt really affluent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, along with that, you know, there was an attempt to, to sort of live in a carefree way. Uh, yeah, in a way that's hardly imaginable these days. Yes, yeah, especially, especially in the last four years of life in America. Yeah. No matter what your political beliefs, it's been deeply upsetting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just been uh, sort of sort of Elmo like. You never know when something really dark and jarring is going to pop up in the middle of your day. <laughs> Tell me about it. With this whole coronavirus scare right now. Um, yeah, it's. Yeah, it's, it's like, wow, on top of everything else, we now have, you know, yeah, it's, I mean, the thing about something like the coronavirus is you have no idea how that's going to play out. Yeah. You know, it, it may turn out to be, you know, they may discover a vaccine for it next week, or it may be like, you know, the the terrible influenza or scarlet fever uh, problems of the early 20th century. It, it may kill millions of people or it may be nipped in the bud. And there's just no way of knowing at this point. Yeah, we're just kind of, you know, going on, going on blind faith that we'll, we'll make it through this. <clears throat> and, like Western Washington's at the epicenter of it in the U.S. right now. Yeah, that's two I, deaths I, in King County and one is Nahomish County. Um, one of the deaths was a parent of a kid who went to the elementary school. All three of my, of my kids went to. Um, oh man! I, I mean, this is like actually one of my coworkers has kids at that school. I mean, this is as close to me personally. Not that I rule the world, but like this is freaking real. Yes, yeah, and it's and it's you know, and it, and it, and I think about it, I think what can I do to be you know how can I be prepared for this? You know, over the weekend I was noticing these accounts in the news of people panicking and you know buying out a store stock of of drinking water or toilet tissue or what have you. And, uh, you know, 
I don't know. I I just you know I I just hope and pray that uh, that you and I and and all our loved ones will be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. We got to a dark place there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, talking about this. Appropriate. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I'm really looking forward to the volume two of Elmo. I was a big fan of this stuff. Um, you know, picking up again after having read it last year, uh, just reminded me of what a unique pleasure it is. Oh, thank you. I mean, that, that's, that's the reason why I did this. It's just, I, you know, it just, it, it means a lot to me to be able to get this out in the world again. And, uh, I have heard from some uh, of Cecil Jensen's uh, descendants. Uh, uh, his uh, granddaughter contacted me a month or so ago and said how much she liked the book. Oh, that's the ultimate and, compliment. That's wonderful. And she said it meant, it meant the world to her family. And uh, I... I have yet to sit down with her and, and pick her brain about any mem She, she was alive when, when Jensen was alive, when, you know, she was a kid then, but she, she did have some memories of him like mowing the lawn and, and, uh, uh, you know, very mundane household chores, but you know, that his sense of humor was just like the, the dry laconic humor in those comic strips. And uh, you know he was a very quiet person who would uh, who would kind of wait his turn and then say one thing that would just you know would just kill everybody, and then he'd go back to being quiet. See, I think eventually you're going to have a Bill Shelley type biography here. You just need to let it evolve. Yeah, it would it would be you know it's it seems like he was. You know, he was, uh, you know, it just, it, that would be a fascinating biography to write. It, it would be really interesting to get inside the, the life of, of some, you know, he was, he was born at, at, in 1902 in, in Utah when it was very much still a frontier town, frontier area. And, uh, you know, which gave him a view, you know, it, people, people of that age experienced such significant changes in the world around them, which, uh, as I near the age of 60, I, I can very much relate to that. Mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, I, I, I realized how out of touch I've gotten with a lot, a lot of things that are just common knowledge to younger people. Yeah, I'm and, sure uh, you... that's one good. That's one good thing about teaching in elementary schools is the the kids uh, are really good bellwethers of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And and uh, uh, always seem to be delighted that they can they can show me stuff that I have no you know didn't know existed or was a thing. 
That's awesome. And you can show him Crazy Cat. Yes. And, uh, and, uh, I discovered something that, that had, that, uh, if I had the wherewithal to do a children's book, uh, uh, I would do a, a book of, of, uh, Dr. Seuss like verse about evil foodstuffs. <laughs> I, uh, I have one kid who just out of the blue said, Mr. Young, can you draw an evil cupcake? And so, okay, that's a good challenge. And so I, I, uh, I drew one and the, and the, the kid was just floored by it. And now every class, somebody asked me to draw. Like yesterday, I was asked to draw an evil dill pickle. <laughs> I, uh, and it's, you know, it, it's, uh, it's become a real thing with this class. It just, you know, it's like, well, okay. I bet they'd love if you made a book of this. Yep. The Little Book of Evil Food. <laughs> Maybe an Edward Gorey kind of book. That sounds fun. Droll little verses. You never know. Oh, thank you.